The Gary Knoll Show, daily at noon on the Progressive Radio Network. Live from New York City, it's the Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll, broadcasting live from our studios in New York City and video streaming live also over ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com or GaryKnoll.com. lot to share today. I was having a juice uh, two days ago, just before going up to an international independent film festival. And a woman came over to me and said that she was a hard liberal, very, uh, very liberal, and a staunch Democrat for her entire adult life. She's a professor of philosophy at uh, Sarah Lawrence University. But now she is of a different mindset. She considers herself a progressive, which means that she is tolerant and patient to listen to points of view without first judging a person and excluding them simply by the label that they have been attached with. Instead, looking to see what they may have that makes sense, that's reasonable, and focusing on that. And she said, I want to thank you because that has opened my mind to an altogether new way of looking at life. And I thought, okay, how many other people are opening their minds, realizing how limited it is to call yourself or think only through the mindset of a particular ideology? What happens if you can look more broadly, more openly, more patiently, more compassionately, more inclusively in all the other realities of life? So I'm going to discuss that a little bit later in the program. My guest in the second part of our program, actually in the first part, will be Professor Michael Hudson. Go back two and a half years ago. On this program, first Michael Hudson and then separate Gerald Salante and I all predicted that the economic crisis would manifest in different ways and that it would create massive austerity programs. Everything to give money back to the banks that cause this problem and take it out of the pockets and savings of people who are just working class people throughout Europe. All it would take would be one country to say no, and that would create chaos. Well, that country has said no. It's Iceland. And over the weekend, they said, no, we're not giving back the banks money at the cost of literally putting our entire population into a form of servitude. So we'll be here to talk about what is the likely outcome of this. How will this impact people in the United States and other countries? What will this do to the price of gold and silver? I believe it's going to cause it to skyrocket. And by another way, another gentleman who is an economist and a lawyer came up to me yesterday as I was walking up Broadway. And he said, just wanted to say, Gary, that two and a half years ago, when you predicted where gold and silver was going to go... I just took a look at what you've been saying and thought, he's been right. Let me put some money behind that. And he bought silver at $8. It's now approaching 40 I believe it's going to go to 60 And he bought gold, and now gold is headed towards 1500 I believe it's going to go to 3000 in the next 12 to 14 months, based upon what happens throughout the world. So it's nice to know that people are getting ahead of the curve. 
have a lot to share with you today, including some issues. I'm going to give you two issues today to think about and then call in and share your points of view. One is a commentary from Yes Magazine, David Corton, and it's Wall Street stands at the pinnacle of 5,000 years of human exploitation. Brilliant short little commentary. And then China tells the U.S. to quit as a human rights judge by Chris Buckley. Two interesting commentaries I'll get to. First, the latest on health and nutrition. I'm a big believer in the power of polyphenols. Well, where do you get your polyphenols? You can get them from a lot of places. But green tea, white tea, red tea, oolong tea, and black tea are good sources. This is the latest. A major study on green tea and Tai Chi, and it was shown to enhance bone health and reduce inflammation in postmenopausal women, which is a high percentage of the women in the United States. And I looked at this study, and it was a simple study. It was funded by the National Institutes of Health, and they simply gave people 500 milligrams a day of green tea polyphenols, or placebo. And then they gave one group Tai Chi, and another group did not get Tai Chi. And then what they found was the study lasted six months, during which time blood and urine samples were collected and muscle strength assessed. And when they gave green tea and Tai Chi, which is a very relaxing, smooth form of meditation and body work, it made an enormous difference compared to the placebo group in this double-line study. So, I'm suggesting 400 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams of green tea polyphenols per day. How do you take it? I would suggest two to 300 milligrams three to four times a day. And then, of course, do your Tai Chi. But if you can't do Tai Chi, then power walking and or yoga would also benefit you. Berries are good. Berries heal. The more berries you eat, the healthier you're going to be. If you juice the berries, that's better than eating them. If you dry the juice and take the powder, that's best of all. Here's the latest study done at Texas Women's University in Denton. And it says blueberries can inhibit the development of fat cells. And this is from the Federation of American Society of Experimental Biology. Quote, the benefits of blueberry consumption have been demonstrated in several nutritional studies, more specifically the cardioprotective benefits derived from high polyphenol content. By the way, polyphenols just like green tea, but different types. Blueberries have shown potential to have a positive effect on everything from aging to metabolic syndrome. That would be diabetes and blood sugar. And the recent one shows that can help limit the accumulation of fat tissue in the body, the fat cells, and the synthesis and storage of fat in those cells. And so, if you want to have less obesity and less weight, eat blueberries or blueberry tablets or blueberry powder. From the environmental section, this is the latest from Science Daily, and this is from the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. It says, climate change poses major risk for unprepared cities. Quote, Cities worldwide are failing to take necessary steps to protect residents from the likely impact of climate change, even though billions of urban dwellers 
are vulnerable to heat waves, sea level rise, and other changes associated with global warming. Quote, Cities are major sources of greenhouse gases, yet at the same time, urban populations are likely to be among the most severely affected by future climate change. Now, what does this mean in lay language? There was a time when you mentioned climate change and the average person rolled their eyes. There was also a time prior to the nuclear power plant explosions and the meltdown in Japan that if you said, what about living near a nuclear facility, people rolled their eyes. They just disconnected. It didn't bear on their reality. Mention an earthquake. Well, the earthquake was always somewhere else, wasn't it? It was in Australia or New Zealand or it was in Chile. Now Japan. But you realize the most densely populated area of the United States is New York City. The closest nuclear facility is only 32 miles north of New York City on the Hudson River, Indian Point. And that of all 104 nuclear facilities, it is considered the most dangerous because the fault line that it sits on could cause major damage if there is a high-category earthquake. What would people do? Where would you go? If there was any form of an earthquake and the systems failed as they did in Japan, within three hours, 25 million people living in the immediate tri-state New York City area would be hit by the radiation. It wouldn't matter if you're in a building and pull down the window blinds or put a sheet up over. Radiation penetrates everything except high-density lead and steel. Well, most people don't live in that kind of environment. How would you get out of the city? What means of transportation would you have? Do you really believe that the police or firefighters without protective gear are going to stand on a street corner to direct traffic and help with the chaos? Let me put it in another way. Look how challenging it is to get out of New York City on a holiday weekend starting about 3 in the afternoon to about 8 at night. That's with under 2% of the population leaving. Now imagine that, let's say, 60% of the people wanted to leave. There'd be no way these people could get out. You'd have massive chaos, and therefore everybody would be polluted. Depending upon the level of the radioactive pollution and which chemicals were in it, cesium, that can last 60 years. If the same amount of pollution that's been released from the radioactive um, contaminants out of Japan's plant, if that were to hit New York City, New York would simply be unlivable for the next hundred years. Not only would it be unlivable, but cars would not be able to be driven, clothes would have to be discarded, and the sickest would die. Children infants would die. Senior citizens would die, and those who would not die would be the strongest, healthiest immune system responders, but those people would have now high levels of radiation, which means that they would die in 5, 10, 20 years. That's what we've seen with Chernobyl. We've uncovered more than 5,000 studies from peer-reviewed literature in Russian that is Slavic in language that has been deciphered by a group of scientists that shows a million people have died 
since Chernobyl because of the radiation they've been exposed to. One of the people I filmed said that because their father was a top-ranking scientist in Kiev, that they were able to immediately evacuate the family, but the Soviet government put the clamp on any real information getting out so everyone else was led to believe that there was no major risk, and there was. So just something to think about. Now imagine that's just one possible risk. What if we had a tsunami on the East Coast? We could, based upon having an earthquake. What would happen to all the subways in lower Manhattan that are at sea level? They would flood. What happens if we had that kind of flooding? Your power would all go out. How would we deal with things as simple as water, clean water, and electricity? We wouldn't. So this study is showing that we are completely, totally, 100% unprepared for any major disaster that could befall us. Now the question is, will we have it? Yes, we will. I've been filming for some time now a major documentary called The Twelve Tipping Points. First, I have yet to find a single person anywhere that I've interviewed who knows even half of the Twelve Tipping Points. So we're completely illiterate upon the consequences that are happening, and at least four of the Twelve Tipping Points are tipping and will tip no matter what we do. The others we could impact, but we're choosing to do nothing. Zero. Not a thing. And the media is complicit in this disinformation campaign, as are the talking head experts that tell us, don't worry, it's not a problem. Okay, just remember what I'm saying. We will be hit with some cataclysmic events in the next five years in major cities, different parts of the United States, and we will be completely unprepared for anything that happens. So for people in this audience, I suggest that you start looking in a reasonable and responsible manner for how you then don't become a part of this problem. Next up, common amphetamine drugs linked to Parkinson's disease. Now this is from a multifaceted health checkup court exam, and it's from the American Academy of Neurology, and it says that Regular use of amphetamine drugs like benzodrine and dexedrine have a heightened risk of developing Parkinson's disease. They examined over 66,000 people over a 10-year period. Now, how about this? How about all the children in the United States that are being diagnosed with ADD or ADHD and given, guess what, amphetamine-like drugs, including uh, Ritalin? And what they're also doing is manufacturers are illicitly prescribing off-label weight loss purposes directly affecting the brain's uptake of dopamine, and that's a vital neurotransmitter that affects mental and physical ability. So we're going to have, in the future, a whole epidemic of Parkinson's disease or Parkinson's symptoms in people when they hit their 20s and 30s and 40s because the high use of all of these Ritalin and other amphetamine drugs on such a high percentage of American population. Just like cell phones are now causing high degrees of jaw cancer, brain cancers, lymphomas, <clears throat> so too now will we see an epidemic of 
Parkinson's. And finally, dumb women go after rich guys. Quote, Women with low IQs are more likely than smarter women to go after rich men. So says new research. Experts say it's not that women with a low IQ are naturally greedy, but they are instinctively trying to line up financial security for their future children. Study author Dr. Christine Stanick, University of Michigan, said that, quote, it's only natural for poorly educated women with dismal job prospects to seek out rich men. In ancient times, women evolved an attractive attraction to men with wealth because they knew such a mate could improve the chances of their offspring's survival. It's a very strong gut feeling that is hard to shake off, especially when a woman does not have her own career, which would give her financial independence. The research also revealed that smart women who are independently wealthy are more likely than dumb ones to have short-term affairs, a phenomenon that Stanick said was due to the women's heightened confidence. Unquote. What are your thoughts on that? I'd like to hear from you. 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. I'd like to hear what you have to say. And one other thing on our issues, before we go to our break here, this is from David Corton. I'll quote it. In an earlier day, our rulers were kings and emperors. Now they're corporate CEOs and hedge fund managers. Wall Street is empire's most recent stage. Its reign will mark the end of the tragic drama of a 5,000 years of empire. Imperial historians would have us believe that civilization, history, and human progress began with a consolidation of dominator power in the first great empires that emerged some 5,000 years ago. Much is made of their glorious accomplishments and heroic battles. Rather less is said about the brutalization of the slaves who built the great monuments, the races and the suppression of women, the conversion of free farmers into serfs or landless laborers, the carnage of the battles, the hopes and lives destroyed by wave after wave of invasion, the pillage and gratuitous devastation of the vanquished, and the loss of creative potential. Nor is there mentioned that most all the advances that make us truly human came before the era of empire, including domestication of plants and animals, food storage, the arts of dance, poetry, basket-making, textile weaving, leather-crafting, meteorology, architecture, town planning, boat-building, highway construction, and oral history. As the institution of empire took root, humans turned from a reverence for the regenerative power of life to a reverence for hierarchy and the power of the sword. The wisdom of the elder and the priestess gave way to the arbitrary rule of often ruthless kings, Social pathology became the norm, and society's creative energy focused on perfecting the instruments of war and domination. Priority in the use of favorable resources went to military, prisons, palaces, temples, and patronage. Great civilizations were built and then swept away in successive waves of violence and destruction. War, trade, and debt serve as weapons of the few to expropriate the means of livelihood of the many and reduce them to slavery or serfdom. Whole empires were subjugated to the delusional hubris and debaucheries of psychopathic rulers. If much of this sounds familiar, it's because in the face of the democratic challenge, the dominator cultures and institutions of empire simply morphed into new forms. The ideals of the American Revolution heralded the possibilities of a new era of equality and popular democratic rule. 
But it was a more modest beginning than we have been taught to believe. Once the former colonies gained their freedom from the British rule and declared themselves the United States of America, the new leaders put aside the pronouncements of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and enjoy a natural right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness and set about securing their own power. The king was gone, but the constitution they drafted was a promise to secure the blessings of liberty, for we the people of the United States effectively limited political participation to white male property owners and secured the return of escaped slaves to their designated owners. Colonial expansion followed soon after as the new nation expropriated by armed force all the native and Mexican lands between themselves and the distinct Pacific Ocean. Global expansion beyond U.S. territorial boundaries followed. The United States converted cooperative dictatorships into client states by giving their ruling classes a choice between align with us with economic and political interest and you can share in the booty or be eliminated by assassination, foreign finance, internal rebellion, or military invasion. Following World War II, when the classic form of colonial rule became unacceptable, Politically unacceptable, international debt became a favorite instrument for forcing poor nations to open to foreign corporate ownership and control. Most of the economic, social, and environmental pathologies of our time, including sexism, racism, economic injustice, violence, and environmental destruction, originate in the institutions of empire. The resulting exploitation has reached the limits that the social fabric and Earth's natural systems will endure. As powerful as Wall Street appears to be, its abuse of power has so eroded the economic, social, and environmental foundations of its own existence that its fate is sealed. We, the people, have a choice. We can allow Wall Street to maintain its grip until it brings down the whole of human civilization in in social and environmental collapse, or we can take control of our future and replace the Wall Street economy with the values and institutions of a new economy comprised of locally owned businesses devoted to serving their communities by investing in their use of local resources to produce real goods and services responsive to local needs. Your thoughts, 888-874-4888. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome all of you. I'm Gary Nall, broadcasting live and streaming video live from our studios in New York City. We're going to be joined in just a moment by Dr. Michael Hudson, who's going to follow up on what we talked about originally two and a half years ago. He, along with Gerald Salante and myself, predicted that not all of those nations who were running into massive debt and were being told, okay, uh, we'll help you out. We're the International Monetary Fund or the European Central Bank or the European Union. You just make sure that all the money that you have, you give to us. And forever. We really don't care whether or not you have, your children are fed. We don't care if your schools closed. We don't care if you have nothing left for yourself. 
make sure we get all of it, with interest, immediately. Well, along went Greece. They went into that. And then Portugal's gone into it, and Ireland's gone into it. And almost everyone else was lined up to do it without a thought, a serious thought. Could this end up being a blowback? Could our public go to the streets? Could they tear down the institutions of corruption and hubris? Could they say no to the international bankers? And why should the international bankers have it their way? After all, they didn't share their profits. Why should we pay for all their losses? It's that unique form of perverted democracy uh, in the capitalist system, laissez-faire. Well, there's nothing laissez-faire about it. It's I win if I win, and I win if I lose. So now Iceland is saying, no, no, we're not going to make your needs of paying you back more important than our needs of self-survival. Michael Hudson in a moment will tell us what that means and how that may impact upon other countries and how it may impact upon the United States. Before we go there, joining us in studio is Valerie. Hi, Valerie. Hi, Gary. What's up, Valerie? Well, I wanted to congratulate you on the latest award that was given to Death by Medicine, your documentary. And this is a very special award. It was from the Litchfield Film Festival. And not only did Death by Medicine win, but you were given an extraordinary achievement for your lifetime in making documentaries. So congratulations. Thank you. And so Death by Medicine is doing really well. It's already uh, won 12 festivals, four special awards so far, and the rest coming up to be judged. And I just wondered if you, you could explain to us why it's important to enter into these, these festivals and what it means. Okay, I'll just take a moment to do this. There's two types of films that are made. They're independent films, truly independent films, and they're independent film festivals. And uh, the majority of film festivals are independent, meaning you have a budget of maybe under 100000 or slightly over 100000 for the entire production. And therefore, they have the same categories, shorts, animation, uh, documentaries, um, feature films, best screenplay, that you would have, let's say, in an Academy Awards. But then you have your other film festivals, like the Sundance, or the Tribeca. Now, Sundance originally was meant to be a workshop forum for independent filmmakers, those who couldn't get the big dollars, those who couldn't get big celebrities, but still had a meaningful film to produce and show. Well, that sold out. It's, it's completely mainstream Hollywood now. now. You could have a $30 million film, a $100 million film in Sundance and Tribeca. So both of those sold their soul. All right? Fine. If you want to do a film today, and more people are doing films than ever before, there are some film festivals that if you get into, and if you're, if you're able just to get into it, that's important. And then if you win anything, that's even more important because it's only by winning in an independent film festival that you have any chance in the world of getting that film shown on other venues like Netflix or anything else. First thing they ask is, what have you won? Because it shows them that you have a certain quality to your film. And I'll give you an example. The Houston International Film Fest is arguably one of the five most respected film fest, independent film festivals there is. That's where Steven Spielberg and a lot of great directors got their start. But they have as many as 30,000 films trying to get in. 
they only take a couple hundred. And then you have to go through a series of finals. And how that happens is they get judges who are expert in a given area to review your film and give their input. And then they had the final hundred or so. And then you're invited down to Houston, and it's a big to-do. They'll have probably a 1,000 people there. And they have, I think, 12 or 13 different categories. And they have a gold, silver, and bronze in each category. So you only know who the final winners were, much like the Academy Award, on the, the night that you're there. We won it seven times. I think that's a record. But we are just, we're notified, as you know, that we just got into the final final. Yes, So we're, we're in the very last final. <clears throat> to win that means that that becomes important in getting more independent television stations or people over the Internet to say, okay, this has won some very important independent awards, meaning not big budget films, but small budgets. So it levels a playing field. And I must say that I've seen more young filmmakers <clears throat> with brilliant ideas, great creativity. It's so inspiring to see people in their 20s and even teens entering films, short films, six-minute films, a two-minute film, a 12-minute film, and being acknowledged. I had a chance to see several of these over the weekend, and I was really impressed. And it just it, to see a room with 500 people and suddenly your name is called and you go up there and you see these <laughs> teenagers, they're having a ball. And that's what we need more of. But we don't have endowments to help these people. The, the, these people can't... Uh, the average film in the United States is about $100 million. And when you see a film, it has to make its money in the first weekend. If it doesn't succeed in the first weekend, it's out of theaters in two weekends. So independent films never get into theaters. They never get on television. So 99% of all independent films, all of them, will never have anyone see them. And how, what a crime against humanity that is in that we, the human population, need the messages and the images and the stories. So one of the things I decided to do when I was driving back from the International Film Festival, in the, the Independent International Film Festival, was in the next year I'm going to set up a true independent documentary channel where 24-7 people can go and by category select any of two or 3,000 documentaries and play whichever one they want and give a venue stream, an income stream to the producer so at least their films will live on because otherwise they can't get, most people don't get in film festivals. The competition's so great you can't get in. And then they don't win when they're in there so nobody will ever see their film. So it's just there's two schools of film. The independents, which rarely if ever get seen, and the studio films, or the hedge fund back films, or the celebrity-driven films, and those are the ones that compete that we go and watch without any awareness that there are all these other treasure trove of great ideas out there. that answer your question? That does. Thank you. Okay. Let's now go over and say hello to my guest standing by, Dr. Michael Hudson. He's one of our nation's important economists and Wall Street financial analysts. He's currently the president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends and was the chief economic policy advisor for Representative Dennis Kucinich in his last camp presidential campaign. 
And he also served as an advisor to the White House, the State and Defense Departments, Tuts Institute. And also he was brought in by the individuals in Iceland to give them some advice, as he was for many other countries around the world. He's one of the top players behind the scene. So he really is important in this discussion because his advice, I believe, I could be wrong, was partly why the people in Iceland said no. The first country since um, the 80s when... um, when in South America, two countries said no uh, and to repaying the international monetary fund and going broke in the process. And let's say hello to Michael Hudson. Nice to have you with us. Thanks, Gary. Now, tell us what we should know about Iceland saying no to paying this back, and how will that, if it will, impact any other country, giving them the courage to say no, and how punitive Will the bankers, the rating agencies, because they're going to downgrade their debt to zero, they're not going to be able to get onto the international bond market, but what could it mean if they're able to survive by really being smart, as they are, and industrious? What, what, what is the good and bad that's going to come to the Icelandic people and to the world community and to us in America? Well, your discussion earlier in the hour was quite correct about Wall Street uh, and the European Central Bank and the EU saying, give us all of your money. Uh, in, the early, in the 1990s, they convinced, the neoliberals convinced uh, Iceland Central Bank to uh, deregulate uh, uh, its entire banking uh, system and uh, just let the bankers... Uh, uh, operate however way they wanted. Uh, that's what Alan Greenspan uh, promised would be automatic self-regulation. And so uh, Iceland's bankers, essentially a small coterie of them, in conjunction with some uh, Russian kleptocrats and uh, criminals, uh, set up the iSave Internet uh, banking, where they offered uh, high, very high interest rates, higher than anybody else, uh, for uh, internet deposits. Uh, the uh, the Banki, uh that did this set up the iSave accounts, and uh, they got a lot of internet deposits. And normally, uh, interest rates are supposed to be uh, a compensation for risk. Uh, uh, but nobody wanted to take a risk, and at a certain point, the British authorities quite correctly said, wait a minute, this gang is a bunch of crooks. They're stealing all of your money. We're closing down uh, the accounts, uh, but we're going to pay all of the depositors, not only all of their deposits in full, but we're going to pay uh, all of the high interest that they'd accepted also. And so Gordon Brown paid uh, the depositors, and then he went onto the floor of Parliament and said, uh, we are going to blackball Iceland, and uh, we are going to uh, make sure they don't get any IMF credit, and we're going to make sure that they cannot join Europe. Uh, well, this was utterly uh, improper. The European Union rules, and here we get into legal technicalities, said that uh, if a uh, bank goes bankrupt, the depositors insurance uh, agency is going to be liable to repay the depositors. And as it turns out, the uh, uh, ice-save deposits in England and in Holland were uh, uh, not uh, overseen by the British uh, deregulatory agencies, or those of Holland, uh, but by Iceland. But because they took uh, the advice of the neoliberals, they had made hardly any uh, reserves at all 
to back them. So uh, Iceland, uh, at that time, uh, the man who was central banker and became prime minister, uh, David Odson, said, okay, you guys lose. Uh, you told us to, uh, to, uh, to deregulate, you told us to liberalize, and now uh, you get all the money in our insurance system. You know, all $10 of it, or a little more than that. Uh, you know, tough luck. So, uh, uh, Gordon Brown um, said, well, then we're going to not let you join Europe. And uh, that put a lot of pressure on uh, the right wing of Iceland. The right wing uh, in Europe, of course, is the Labour Party and the Social Democratic Party. They said, no matter what, we want to pay the bankers in full. We are willing to plunge our economy into 50 years of depression. We are willing to make 20% of our people emigrate. We are willing to reduce our society to feudalism in order uh, not to look at who the bankers were, who were the criminals and ripping everything off. Well, fortunately, uh, there's a technicality in Iceland's constitution where the president has to sign any uh, agreement made by uh, the government. And this is sort of like going to a notary public. It's a purely ceremonial position. But the president uh, said, wait a minute, this, if you're going to uh, reduce a country to feudalism to pay the banks, at least they have to, ha under democratic rules, have a vote. And needless to say, the Icelanders voted uh, against uh, paying it off a year ago. Ninety-three percent of the voters said, we're not going to pay. We don't have to pay. We want to stand on the rule of law. And the court said, you get all $10 in our uh, uh, system, and that's, uh, you know, that'll bail out the $5 billion we owe. Uh, you neoliberals said it was risk-free. Fine. Uh, then uh, you pay the price. Well, the government uh, tried to renegotiate the debt, got a lower interest rate of 3 and a half instead of five percent, uh, and a stretch out saying Iceland had a little longer to pay, and they went to the polls again. And uh, the early polls uh, said, "Well, the uh, the government actually is swaying public opinion, sort of Obama style. They're telling people maybe we should pay." Uh, but then there was a big push last last uh, last week, and uh, they voted no again by a margin of sixty percent, and seventy five percent of Icelander voters turned out. That's a very high percentage. Uh, My Michael, I just want to ask you some, we only have two minutes left. I okay. want to ask you short answers now. Okay. Are there any other countries that you're aware of that may pick up and, and follow in Iceland's steps or not? No one else has the legal power or the political power uh, uh, to do it. The uh, rulers of, Mo of Ireland and Greece are so complicit with the criminals, their campaigns are paid for by the financial criminals, the newspapers are run by the financial criminals, um, that there's very little opportunity to do what Iceland is doing. Okay, so okay good. Okay, yeah. you answered that, but here's the second part of that. The population of Ireland is far, far, far more intelligent on political and economic issues than the average American, who are completely yep. stupid on it, yep. as they are in Spain, as they are in Portugal. Is there any likelihood at all that because of what Iceland has done, the other countries having destroyed and gutted their retirement programs, their benefit programs, their unemployment is going to skyrocket, their inflationary spires are going to be in, the cost of food is going to hurt them, that they would revolt and tell their corrupt governments no more? The voters are in 
indeed smart, but the, uh, they all complain that the government has been decoupled from what the people want. The governments are not doing what the textbooks say. They're not acting in the national interest of the countries. They're acting in okay, the interest then of the banks. Then so we have an oligarchy, not a democracy. I understand, and you're fully correct, but will anyone in Europe as a movement do what they did in the to the 22 Arab League nations, revolt, go to the streets, and take back the government? That's what people are wondering about, and of course that's the issue, uh, and I've been talking about that uh, in a number of countries, uh, but so far the uh, they're sort of floundering because they've been betrayed by the left. Uh, the left is on the side of the bankers, uh, the, and that's the same in, in Iceland, by the way. This is, these are the conservatives and the farmers. The conservative parties are opposing paying. It's the labor parties that are on the far right of the spectrum saying, pay the banks. Uh, it's the labor parties that have been almost parasitized by the banks. And so there's a confusion over Europe over what is left and right. And the whole financial issue is neither left or right. Okay. And uh, it has not politicized itself yet. Then final question for you. Do you see this having any repercussions in the United States? And do you see the United States, or at least 240 million people in the United States living just above, at, or below the poverty level, or sustainable level, do you see any effort here to push back against the, uh, the rape of our Constitution and by the bankers and Wall Street, the White House and Congress? None at all, and here's why. Uh, there's sort of a deal between the Republicans and Obama that uh, Obama is supporting uh, the Republican position uh, and the Republicans have agreed to put such nutcases in as the opposition that Obama in taking the Republican position supporting Wall Street can say he's the voice of reason compared to the Tea Party people. So Obama has dragged the Democratic Party so far to the right that it's to the right of uh, the Hoover administration in the 30s. Obama's uh, plan that he's already announced is to scale back Medicaid, I'm sorry, uh, scale back Social Security. Uh, he's put the class war back in business, and uh, basically he's pulled the whole Democratic Party with him. So unless there's a third party, unless there's a uh, reorganization of politics, uh, Obama's going to uh, drag everybody uh, into the uh, Republican Party. Well, uh, Clinton did, so why not Obama? We'll look forward to another Newsmaker update from you in the very near future to give us more insights. Thank you very much, Gary. Professor Michael Hudson, he was ahead of the curve. He was right in his predictions, and you heard what he said. No revolutions, no going to the streets, just continued dumbing down and selfish individual pursuit of our illusionary opiate dreams. I'm Gary Nall, back in a moment. The cowboys, the wrestlers, the tumblers, the clowns, the roustabouts that move the show at dawn. The music, the spotlights, the people, the towns, your baggage with the labels pasted on. The sawdust and the horses and the smell. The towel you've taken from the last hotel. There's no I'd like to welcome all of you. I'm Gary Knoll. We're opening our lines now. If you have any comments on any of the issues that we've discussed, issue time, 888-874-4888. 
Now, I'm going to be going to your mailbag here in a moment, and we'll be joined by one of our listeners. I've invited people from the audience to come in and read the mail and then select some issues they thought was important and share them. So we'll be hearing from Elizabeth in a moment. But we've got two specials. Today is our special day, not one but two. First up, the advanced supremacy. That's one I take every day. That's my favorite of the vitamin C's. And there's a good reason why. Because look what I put in it. First, in a single serving, you're getting 2,241 milligrams of vitamin C, including ascorbyl palmitate, calcium ascorbate, potassium ascorbate, magnesium ascorbate, ascorbic acid. That's the best combination of vitamin C going into your body I could possibly create. Then also, selenium, uh, sodium selenate, potassium, cranberries, uh, blueberries, bioflavonoids, uh, the uh, beta bulgarius fruit powder that I don't know other people have, and then amla, A-M-L-A, fruit extract, and stevia, and that's it. It is a phenomenal buffered vitamin C, the best advanced formula I know of in the world, and you buy one and you get one free. How about that? Buy one, get one free. So that's one special. And you can call 877-627-5065. 877-627-5065. Our second special today is Age Busters. You buy one, you get one free. Now, this is where I put in those nutrients that I believe that most people do not consider but are very, very important for helping you. And and Age Busters, I give you the following. I give you the mixed tocopherols and um, vitamin B is thiamine monohydrate and pentothenic acid and L-carnosine and acetyl-L-carnitine arginate and glycerophosphorylcholine and R, fraction alpha-lipoic acid and phosphatidylserine and ginkgo and quercetin and L-phenylalanine and choline and taurine and cysteine and cayenne and benfetamine and L-carnitine and glutathione and blue cohosh and aspartic acid and uh, caprylic acid and pregnenolone and Siberian ginseng and rosemary. Those are all very important. All you have to do is look up the formula of uh, Age Busters, look under Google, look under each one of the studies that are out there, and then you'll see why I put them all in one single tablet. Age Busters and Advanced Supremacy on special. Buy one of either one, get one free. Call 877-627-5065. And finally on this, I had so many people call who were disappointed they couldn't come to the lecture because our lecture filled up in under five minutes on Friday night. I'm going to do it again this Friday night, 7 p.m. So understand, every lecture I've done, 5,000 lectures, have all been packed. So if you want to come this Friday night, you call now. You'll call that same number. The lecture starts at 7, and I'm actually expanding that lecture. I'm, I'm going to deal. I didn't have time to deal with all the questions people have about human sexuality, finance, jobs, and careers, places to live in the world that are safe, how to enhance your relationship, how to get over your past, how to get over your problems, your traumas, your pain, how to stop using this notion of love in the wrong way and use it in the right way. What happens when you can't usher in forgiveness? You are stuck in a bad place, no matter what you try to wrap it around and how to stop playing the role of a professional victim and get on with your life. Or your, then your hidden agenda is to play a victim because you can get a lot of people to come in to rescue you if you play the victim. 
I'm going to deal with all this about the problems we have in our lives and how to solution uh, formulate our lives. Every step, a solution. That's what the lecture's about. If you want to come, it's 877-627-5065. 877-627-5065. Joining me in studio is Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello, Gary. Now, Elizabeth, what have you grabbed from the uh, mailbag? Yes, um, this is from Ryan. He met yesterday in L.A. with his mother and his older and younger sisters. Ryan has been living in Spain and working there for the past six years, and he's only been back a week. And he says one of his joys of being back has been to listen to KPFK on Wednesday's overnight show. So he's happy about that. <coughs> That's a show I do for six hours every on the East Coast, it's from 3 to 9 a.m. Wednesday morning. On the West Coast, it's midnight to 6, and I've been on there 26 years. Right. He, he, wrote, he uh, got in contact with you because he personally wants to thank you for saving his younger sister's life. Evidently, six years ago, you had been, you'd done a lecture out in um, L.A., and his mother, Linda, and his older sister, Julie, had come to see the lecture. Afterwards, um, you did what you normally do and you stayed and you answered everyone's personal questions and it took almost two hours. Um, after this, uh, they wanted to come up and see you privately because they didn't want anyone to hear their questions or your answers to them. And the sister had spoken to you and she explained this was the problem. The younger sister was living as a drug addict and a prostitute. Um, she had HIV. Um, she was infected with hepatitis. Uh, she'd been in and out of rehab 15 times since she was 17 years old. And at this point, she was now 26. She'd spent 10 years uh, living her life out of control, basically. It had become so bad that no one wanted her to come home because at night, in the middle of the night, she'd steal anything that was of value to sell and get back into drugs. She had liver failure, she was at death's door, and um, they, she really needed your help. But she had not come from an abusive background. Her mother was a psychology PhD. Um, they were only very loving and very supportive towards her. Um, so there was no sexual abuse, there was no violation. Um, Ryan had said that it had been a phenomenal family environment for her to be um, growing up in. Um, but the father had recently died of a stroke, and um, this could have been, he believes it might have been due to the sister, um, the problems with the sister. Um, and the older sister is a sociologist. So all in all, this was a very tough case, and uh, she'd been in, out of, in and out of psychological institutions also four times. Um, she'd also, she was also a pathological liar, and she'd mastered the art of having people rescue her, and then she would use them and abuse them and condemn them, and then just move on, and she'd leave a trail of destroyed lives, including her own family. But she could be as charming a person as could be. She was a creative artist type, very sensitive soul, um, but she acted as though the world was the problem and not her. And one day, her older sister had been listening to your program as she'd known of four people who'd followed the AIDS protocol and you'd help them. And she said that you'd done something remarkable. After the theater, after you'd spent all that time lecturing them and after two hours of listening and answering people's questions, you then sat quietly with the mother and the two daughters by themselves for almost five hours, four and a half hours with them and gave them lots and lots of advice and lots of your time 
And after that time with them, she began to make changes for the first time in her adult life. She stopped taking drugs, she stopped being a prostitute, she stopped blaming everyone for her problems and realizing that you know she'd gotten herself into it and not them. And Ryan had gone away and then he'd come back, but they had a chance to go over everything yesterday in LA. And she'd had her blood work done and very importantly it showed that she had no hepatitis now. She has no HIV, she has no liver disease, no lung disease because she'd been smoking crack. Her brain chemistry had returned to normal and her biochemistry has been reversed. And she's now living a happy, she's happy, living as a happy person. She's very positive, she's being as nice as she can be. And her mother says that if it was not for you, she would have been dead six to eight months ago. And the family want to thank you for saving their sister's life. You've got, got her off drugs, prostitution, her biochemistry's been reversed. She's totally healed and they're very, very grateful to you. And all of this was done at no charge. And just from um, all of this, I was just wondering how you feel when, you know, how, can you tell us a little about what it feels like when you're helping and healing people every day for free? And then you, these stories, you know, people have completely cured. I'm happy for this family. I never follow up on people to see what happens. I believe that if we have a gift, we give a gift. <clears throat> I remember this situation because of how much time I spent with them because we finally had to end the conversation because the theater wouldn't allow me to stay any longer because everyone had gone and the man who's closing up at night said you got to leave so we went outside and stood outside and talked for a while what I found to be the problem was that she had mastered the wrong energy she had mastered the energy that the daughter the problem daughter had mastered the energy of using other people to live her life through she triangulated everyone she, she, after speaking with her, she acknowledged she was a malicious gossip, that she used everyone. She used all of her boyfriends, <clears throat> and she selected people that would want to rescue her. So she got some fairly decent guys in her life, but without exception, she manipulated them, always making everyone else seem as if they were the problem, not her. The world was against her. And, uh, and I just asked her, I said, if you could live your life over again, would you write this story of your life? Or would you choose a different story to write? And she said, well, I don't want the same life I've lived. She said, it's been very destructive, but I don't know how to get out of it. And I said, well, it's simple. Just realize you've, you've written a lie. Your life is a lie. Now, why don't you tell the truth? So the first thing I asked her to do was to go home with her family and sit there. And as painful as it may be, to tell the truth about everything that she had done to manipulate and lie to other people. And I said, one of the things that happens is that when you are on different meds and you also use drugs and you've used other people and you live through other people, that you won't even know the truth anymore. You actually believe your own lies. And then you're always the victim of someone else. And I said, most people that I've ever tried to help in my life have been the same. I don't see a whole lot of difference. And I said, so just understand that it's, tell the truth, as hard as and painful as it may be, and just keep, because every time you tell the truth, you wipe out the lie. It's like going up to a board that's a chalkboard, and you've got a thousand stories up there, and they're all myth. Now wipe them all out, and in replace of each one of the stories you wipe out, put the truth down of what you did, why you did it, 
as best as you can understand it. <clears throat> That's what I ask her to do. That's the first step. I don't tell people to run out and get a drip of vitamin C or something like that. You've got to deal with the underlying fun- dysfunction within a person's perceptions. If you can't help a person change their perceptions, you will never have success helping them with what they need to change. And that's evidently what they did, and that's why the person had the success they did. So that's the, that's the idea. If all I did was do the same counseling as everyone else and every one of those drug rehab, I'm sure she got good you know, therapy and insights and the, and the different support groups she was in or by the psychologist. Her mother's a psychologist. I'm sure then that I would have been no more successful than they. So my approach is I never take the same approach as everyone else because if they didn't get results, why would I get them? It's like a chemotherapist that never looks at how many patients you actually save and reverse their cancer. You simply realize this is that you know this is your cookbook, this is your recipe. So every person comes in, you're looking at giving the same identical recipe. I don't believe in doing that. Right. And so I'm glad that this worked. I'm glad it turned her life around. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth. And if you have questions or statements you'd like to share, please feel free to do so by going to uh, Ask Gary at GaryNall.com. Let's say hello to Chris from New Jersey. Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Hi, Gary. Um, I'm going back to your little talk about rich women marrying men for money so that it would be the survival of their children type thing. Yes. Um, I think that that um, is true. And... um, uh, However, as women are getting more, I'm 60, so I'm talking from a vantage of some history, but um, I think as women are getting more empowered, that's stopping. But a, a kind of twist, a twist to that vignette is happening now that there are men who are aligning themselves with rich women not to have to work, or women who have inherited money or come into money, and then the men kind of stay with them for that, and then alimo- then the, that woman would have to pay alimony for the guy so she can't get rid of him unless she wants to lose all her finances. So I think the legal system is now playing into this um, kind of Neanderthal perception of, of get with the rich or the powerful or the strong so your children will be well. Now we're getting all kinds of twists and turns on that situation. Well, I have, I have women friends from all economic and social strata. And what I have found, speaking with what I will call the dynamic three, dynamic aggressives, dynamic assertives, and dynamic supportive life energies, uh-huh. these are women who see the big picture. They tend to be universally independent thinkers. They also like to manage their own lives. They don't like having anyone micromanage their lives, and they are—they tend to be problem uh, and solution-oriented. They look at problems, they come up with solutions. Mm-hmm. They are very susceptible, according to what they say, of having men come into their lives who want them to be their mother, their mistress, their savior, their banker, their housekeeper, their restaurateur, uh, room service, uh, do the laundry. And the moment that they fall for this, and I asked one in particular, I said, well, what, what do they see in you? And the woman says, well, you have a very nurturing nature if you're one of these dynamics. And people are attracted to it, especially men who are insecure, who live through, other, who live through women, who are very dynamic. 
and she said that virtually all of her other friends who themselves are dynamic women have had the same situation. It is only, they said, and Barbara Seaman, who was one of my friends and co-authored For Women Only, a 1,600-page opus on women's issues, and we toured the United States together, and she was one of the... uh, great feminist educators ever in the United States history. She passed away a few years ago. And uh, she said, if you're a dynamic woman, make sure that you associate with a dynamic man. Well, maybe you learn that at 60 when you should have known it at 20. If you're not, then you will be as susceptible as a woman to a man taking advantage of you, using you, getting what they can from you, and then suddenly blaming you because all of them said the same thing. When it was all over, they were blamed for anything that happened, they were made to feel bad, they were made to feel guilt and shame, and it took them a while to get back into their own sense of self, since men who manipulate women almost always look to do something for the woman that is so unique that the woman then prizes that instead of looking at the totality of what the man represents. Are they independent? Are they nurturing? Are they giving? Are they selfless? And then when they see, they said, my God, why didn't I use my intuition? It was there all along. How could I have been so foolish? And yeah. they kind of beat up on themselves. And I'm suggesting what you said is as equally true for men as it is for women. Mm-hmm. When you see people who want to live through other people, they will use the tools they have. Now, what are the most common tools to use? Sex. All right. That is the most common tool. Or money. So you either provide money to someone who doesn't have it, or you provide sex to someone, in which case then that becomes the equalizing exchange. Well, how long does that work? Rarely, and it's never sustainable. You have to have a quality within the relationship that is based upon mutual respect of the human being, a care and nurturing for the person and extending love for the person as a person, not to be made over into your image, Because anyone who is so insecure that you need someone to made over as you are is a person that should be examining their need for control over another person. Yes. Well, now, what do you, first of all, you're 110% right on, and I'm one of those women. I can vouch what you're saying is accurate. What do you do once you are legally bound to such a man, and it's a fortune of money to unbound yourself to such a person? Understand that your life and your happiness and your joy and your health are far more important than an economic reality. Accept the mistake has been made. Appreciate the lesson of that mistake. Because we all make mistakes. I can't tell you how many women I've had in my life as friends or trying to help them on different levels that I never should have invited that person in because all they were doing was having another agenda. So when you learn the lesson and you pay the price, then don't make that lesson again. Mm-hmm. Have it once. No matter what it costs you, better to pay the lesson and say, okay, I learned that and then be a stronger, better human being because of it. Any hope that if you come clean to this guy that he could turn around? No. I've never met anyone in my life that's actually changed to be the best they could be in my own life. Now, that doesn't mean with all the people I help get this message and workshops, counseling, that they're not some people that change. There certainly have been. But all the people who promised that they would change, none have. Mm-hmm. No. No, you shouldn't be living through relationships to help other people. You should be there to share the best you are. Just make sure that the best they are is exactly compatible with the best you are. Yeah. And if it's not, pass on it. No matter what it is you're sharing, pass on it. Because whatever you take in the short term, you will regret later. 
and it will cost you emotionally and it will cost you financially. It will cost you on all levels. And I don't believe that we should be paying for the mistakes that we have made as if we are indentured to another person. Don't let other people manipulate you through fear, intimidation, guilt, or shame. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. You, you really you really ping this. I can't believe you know about this stuff, but thank you very much. Okay, Chris. Okay, bye. We're out of time. Thank you all very much. I appreciate you listening and watching in. Look forward to sharing more on our next program. Everything that happens in life can happen in a show. You can make them laugh. You can make them cry. Anything, anything can go. A clown. The Gary Knoll Show is produced in our New York City studio. The producer is Richard Gale. The engineer is Matt Bogart. All shows are archived by Joe Kemp. The chief archivist is Sharon Pride, and the program director is Jason Taubenfeld. On the lady in tights. Or the bride with the guy on the side. Or the ball where she gives him her all. That's entertainment. The plot can be hot, simply teeming with sex. A gay divorcee who is after her ex.